traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen and Jenny from Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. This is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please support the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the ancient world. Thanks again for listening. During the first half of the 8th century BC, the city of Carchemish re-emerges from a century of textual darkness. The last ruler we knew by name was Sengara, who alternately capitulated to and fought against Ashurnasir Paul II and Shalmaneser III. After that, we get zero details through the next four Assyrian kings. In fact, when the rulers of Carchemish re-emerge, it's not in Neo-Assyrian annals, but in Luwian hieroglyphic inscriptions embellishing their own royal monuments. So, let's hear live and direct from the latest rep for our favorite Riverine kingdom. I am the ruler Yariri, the prince beloved by the storm god Kubaba, Karhuha, and the sun. The gods have made me strong and exalted over Carchemish. I strengthened Carchemish, and I exalted my lord's house in Carchemish. I caused the river to pass here. I built the temple of the god of Harmana, and I made my own statue. I brought up Kamani as a successor, wherefore I showed virtue above all kings. And I brought up his younger brothers. I let them in as brothers, and I extended protection to them, the children of my lord, Asterua. In the Museum of Anatolian Civilization in Ankara, Turkey, there's a stone slab recording the boys' names, along with a relief that shows them playing knuckle bones. It's very cute. I'll post a picture. In another inscription, Yariri claims that When I built this seat for my lord's child, Kamani, I made him sit high, and he trampled over all while he was a child. And with him I made his brothers. And although Kamani was a child, in time I shall cause him to stand three times, four times on his path. I shall raise them up before the storm god. My favorite Neo-Hittite relief also from the museum in Turkey, shows Yariri carrying a scepter with a sword at his waist, 
holding the young Kamani by the wrist, while Kamani leans on a stick and wears a sword belt over his shoulder. The inscription reads, This is Kamani and his siblings. I held his hand, and despite the fact that he was a child, I located him on the temple. This is Yariri's image. So, quite the info dump. But then they'd been holding it in for roughly a century or so. So, let's unpack it a bit. The speaker, Yariri, claims to be raising the crown prince, Kamani, along with several of his brothers, all of whom are the children of a figure named Asterua, which suggests that Yariri was a royal relative or high official who'd taken on the role of regent on the death of Asterua. Going by visual clues in the accompanying relief, he was also likely a eunuch. Yariri took pride in his education and claimed to be fluent in the writing of the city, in the writing of Tyre, in the Assyrian writing, and in the Aramaic writing. And I knew twelve languages. By traveling, my lord raised a son of every country for me regarding language, and he caused me to know every skill. Now that we have the basics, I need to hit you with another inscription one that packs a bigger historical punch. I am the ruler Yariri, the prince known in the West and East, beloved of the gods. And because of my justice, the storm god and the sun caused my name to pass to heaven, and the gods caused my name to pass abroad. And men heard my name on the one hand in Mizra, and on the other hand they heard it among the Musa, the Muska, and the Sura. Scholars have translated these terms as likely referring to Egypt, the Lydians, the Phrygians, and probably the Neo-Hittite kingdoms of Tabal. Which means it's time to broach a topic that we haven't really covered yet which is what's been happening in the rest of Anatolia beyond the Hittite kingdoms. We've noted how the former Hittite regions of Tarhuntasa and coastal Kizawadna were now the kingdoms of Helaku and Quay, and would later be known as rough and smooth Cilicia. We've also touched on the Neo-Hittite kingdoms of Tabal in the former Hittite lower land approaching the Hollis River which we'll cover a bit more next season. What we haven't discussed are the former western coastal regions of Luka, Arzawa, and Tarawisa, as well as the central Anatolian region formerly known as Hatti. Let's start with the coast. According to historian Trevor Bryce, it's possible that much of western Anatolia suffered significant depopulation in the course of the so-called Sea Peoples' sweep through the region. Even for indigenous peoples who survived the collapse, the coast was likely considered unsafe, and many likely relocated to inland regions. For others who hadn't experienced this trauma, the western Anatolian coast was simply a rich, fertile land that offered good prospects for those seeking to start their lives afresh. Many of these new coastal immigrants hailed from mainland Greece. 
One group, the Aeolian Greeks, settled mainly in the northwest region of Tarawisa, more commonly known as the Troad, and which eventually became known as Aeolus. The region south of Aeolus, the former Arzawa, was settled by Ionian Greeks, who traced their origins, at least in retrospect, to the major city of Athens. Bryce quotes Herodotus in reporting that the Ionians did not bring their wives with them, but acquired instead local carrion wives by murdering their fathers, husbands, and children. If true, it's a rare recorded incident of violence between the incoming Greeks and the locals. Bryce notes that in the early centuries of the first millennium BC, Ionia developed into one of the most prosperous regions of the Greek world and played a leading role in the development of classical Greek culture. Probably in the 9th century BC, the twelve chief Ionian cities formed a league called the Pan-Ionium. The body initially met in the sanctuary of Poseidon at the foot of Mount Mycale near Priene. The senior member of this league was Miletus, former Bronze Age Milawata. South of Ionia was the region of Caria home to an indigenous Anatolian people formerly known as the Carcissa. South of Caria lay Lycia, a pretty straightforward translation of Bronze Age Lucca, and home to the descendants of its Hittite-era Luwian-speaking population. Before I move on to central Anatolia, I wanted to highlight one additional very special case— not in Anatolia, but at the port of Almina in northern Syria. Historian Richard Miles notes that archaeological evidence from this trading station, located near the mouth of the Orontes River, points to the existence of Phoenicians and Euboean Greeks residing and trading together in what was most probably a Syrian-controlled settlement. While a large quantity of Greek pottery was found at Almina, a far greater amount of Levantine material was also discovered, and much of the pottery assumed to be Greek may have actually been made on Phoenician-dominated Cyprus. Historian Carolina Lopez-Ruiz notes that the earliest pottery shards were dated to between 770 and 750 BC, in other words, the time frame of our story. In her estimation, Almina was likely a multi-ethnic entrepot integrated into a dominantly local context, as also confirmed by the appearance of Greek, Aramaic, and Phoenician graffiti. It's somewhere among these cultural touchpoints, Almina, Cyprus, or the central Mediterranean islands of Sardinia and Ischia, that Greeks first adapted the Phoenician alphabet to create the new Greek alphabet. Getting back to central Anatolia, Bryce relates that the power vacuum created by the fall of the Hittite kingdom was eventually filled by newcomers to Anatolia called the Phrygians. As best we can tell, the Phrygians migrated from Thrace and Macedonia in the wake of the Hittite collapse. But it was only in the time frame of our story, the mid-8th century BC, that they became a significant power. The critical development 
was a union formed between the Phrygians and an eastern Anatolian people known as the Mushki. We've definitely touched on the Mushki before, way back in the Late Bronze Age. An inscription from around 1100 BC records how five Mushki kings for 50 years had held the countries of Alza and Perukus just north of the city of Malatya. We also discussed how the Mushki homeland was thoroughly ravaged by Tiglath-Pileser I. After the assault, the Mushki migrated further west to the regions of Cilicia and Cappadocia, where they eventually encountered the Phrygians. The nature of the alliance between the Mushki and Phrygians is poorly understood, but the Mushki appeared to play the dominant role. In Yariri's inscription from the top of the show, he referred to the combined peoples as the Muska, and the first recorded Phrygian king, Meti or Midas, was likely of Mushki origin. The eventual capital of this tribal alliance was the Phrygian city of Gordian, in western-central Anatolia. In the wake of a fire around 800 BC, the city's inhabitants completed a massive construction program on the Citadel Mound. They expanded the fortifications to include a pair of forts, to the north and south, connected by a circuit wall that enclosed an area over 25 hectares. Over the course of the 8th century BC, Gordian's footprint and Phrygian power would only continue to grow. Off to the east, Sarduri II had spent the late 760s and early 750s campaigning to the north and southeast. In texts inscribed at his capital of Tushpa, he records that, I went to the country of Manea. I conquered the country. I burnt the towns, pillaged the countryside, and exiled the population to Urartu. Manea was a kingdom in the Zagros Mountains, southeast of Lake Urmia. Sarduri also campaigned in the local Zagros region of Namri, just east of the Diala River, and, as it happens, not too far from the Assyrian capital of Asur. In one of his inscriptions, the Assyrian Turtanu Shamshi-Ilu had called himself Governor of Namri. So, like with Malatya, it's another clear case of Urartu expanding by absorbing Assyrian possessions. Sarduri records that during the same year, my troops went to the country of Ariaki, conquering the country, setting fire to the towns, pillaging the countryside. Ariaki was located north of Mount Ararat, between Lake Savan and the Black Sea coast. In another inscription, Sarduri records a return to Ariaki, where he fired the cities, pillaged the countryside, and exiled the population to Urartu. He ends by recording that, I built forts at Ariaki and annexed the country. The god Haldi I glorified. Sarduri also recorded subduing Kulha, likely the Black Sea region of Colchis. In the west, securing the Syrian kingdom of Malatya remained an ongoing challenge. 
The city had first been forced into vassalage during the reign of Sarduri's grandfather, King Menua. But the Malachian king, Hilaruwada, son of Shahu, soon went into rebellion, and Argishti had to come back west and recompel his submission. Now it was apparently Sarduri's turn. In a rock inscription, he records devastating the country of Malachia and forcing its king once again into vassalage, as well as annexing ten Malachian fortresses along the frontier. Historian Christoph Hipp notes that one fortress, Tumishka, gave the Urartians a reliable river crossing, comparable to the Assyrian crossing at Karshalmaneser. All of which brings us to the extremely eventful and extremely confusing period of the mid-750s BC. Let's start things off in Assyria. I mentioned last episode that the lengthy reign of the current king, Ashurdan III, was just one long litany of disasters. In fact, approaching the mid-750s, most eponym chronicle entries either speak of rebellions or just say, in the land, which may have meant no campaign was fought, or may have meant defending the north from attacks by Sarduri II. In 754 BC, his 18th year on the Assyrian throne, Ashurdan decided to go out with a bang. The eponym chronicle gives the gist with its entry of To Arpad. And based on this, we can reasonably assume a few things. First, that the Assyrians were seriously spooked by Urartu's encroachment along the Euphrates. Second, that Urartu's strategy for the region involved making local alliances. And third, that their most likely ally in northern Syria was the Aramean kingdom of Arpad. At the turn of the century, Arpad's king, Atar Shumkid, forged coalitions that had fought the Assyrians on at least two occasions, both of which had ended with effective stalemates. Decades later, Arpad was still viewed as a nexus of further rebellion. So Ashurdan decided that he needed to smash the kingdom so cataclysmically that it would never again raise up its head. Of course, the person he sent to do the actual smashing was his Turtanu, Shamshi-Ilu. So, the Assyrian army marched on Arpad. And what's the confusing part? Well, our main source for the conflict's outcome is a fairly mysterious treaty. You see, the treaty was made between Mati-El, the king of Arpad, and Bargaya, the king of Katika with Katika spelled K-T-K. Now, you haven't heard me mention Katika because it's otherwise unattested. In other words, we have no idea who, what, or where the kingdom of Katika was. But it's pretty obvious from the treaty's context that Arpad had been thoroughly defeated. First and foremost, the treaty sworn before a pantheon of Mesopotamian gods, including Marduk, Nabu, Nergal, Shamash, and Sin, as well as Hadad of Aleppo. But the kicker is the treaty's stipulations. 
In one clause, Bargaya of Katika demands that if one of my officials or one of my brothers or one of the people under my control flees from me and becomes a fugitive and goes to Aleppo, you must return them to me. He also stipulates that when I send my messenger to any one of the kings around me or to anyone who is a friend of mine to exchange greetings or for any of my business, or the friend sends his messenger to me, the road shall be open to me. Bargaya even demands that if he or his sons or offspring are killed by one of my brothers, or by one of my sons, or one of my officers, or one of my officials, or one of the people under my control, or one of my enemies, the king of Arpad must come and avenge my blood from the hands of my enemies. It also includes the poetic threat that if Matiel is false, his kingdom shall be like a kingdom of sand, nay, a kingdom like a dream that fades with fire. One of the most interesting parts of the treaty is that its provisions are said to apply to all of Aram, or Upper and Lower Aram. Historian Daniel Kahn suggests that this entity was composed of Arpad together with neighboring Luash and Hamath, all of which were Aramean kingdoms. He even suggests that Arpad may have recently conquered these territories, which may have also ramped up Assyrian concerns. It's a slight digression, but also worth mentioning that the power of Aram Damascus had waned since Shamshi Ilu's 773 campaign, the one where he'd recovered the Pazarchik stele. During the same period, both Israel and Judah had long-reigning rulers, Jeroboam II and Uzziah, respectively, who oversaw eras of increased development and prosperity. Some scholars support the biblical assertion that a resurgent Israel may have briefly conquered Damascus and extended its dominion right up to Hamath, or in the treaty's phrasing, right up to the borders of Lower Aram. It's a very, very long treaty, and I barely scratched the surface. But the main takeaways are that A, someone in Syria was powerful enough to impose very harsh terms on the kingdom of Arpad, a kingdom historically known for its fierce independence. B, the person who did so had relations with numerous allied kings in the region. And C, the person who did so is otherwise completely unattested. In light of all this, it's been theorized that the powerful figure who imposed this treaty was none other than Shamshi Ilu. Historian Yutaka Ikeda proposes that, in response to recent Urartian advances, the Turtanu may have organized a federation of the riverine kingdoms of Kuma and Karkemish, together with the former Tilbarsip, now Karshalmaneser. He suggests that the KTK recorded in the inscription is an acronym for Kuma Tilbarsip Karkemish, and that Bargaya, which translates to Son of Majesty, is a reference to Shamshi Ilu. 
Why would Shamshi Ilu dictate the treaty? Well, several reasons. As Turtanu for three successive kings, Shamshi Ilu was easily the second most powerful, if not the most powerful, man in the Assyrian Empire. One assumes that, with all the recent rebellions, the royal family probably owed their position, and even their lives, to his abilities, experience, and loyalty. From his many inscriptions at Kar Shalmaneser, including one carved into the city's stone lions, we also know that Shamshi Ilu was frequently based in the city, and likely considered himself the effective viceroy of the West. But there was probably even a better reason, because at the time that the treaty was being imposed, the Assyrians were swapping out kings. The year of the Arpad campaign, 754, was also the last year of Ashurdan's reign. He was succeeded by his brother, Ashur-Nirari V, yet another son of Adad-Nirari III. We also know that the following year, Sarduri launched a full-scale assault on Assyria. According to Hip, the two armies clashed on the Upper Tigris where Sarduri records a resounding victory, asserting that he devastated the land of Arme and its royal city, Naharia. By contrast, the eponym chronicle for Ashur-Nirari's year one contains the prosaic entry of In the Land, which, in fairness, reads better than Severely Trounced by Urartu. While it may not be direct cause and effect, the very next year, 752, Shamshi Ilu was reinvested as Turtanu by his fourth Assyrian king. As it turns out, the long treaty we just discussed wasn't worth the rock it was carved on. Because the next time Sarduri II came calling, Arpad was more than happy to jump ship and join with its enemy's enemy. In fact, not only did Sarduri retain Malacha and add Arpad, but Hip also credits the Urartian king with securing an alliance with Gurgum. Swept up in the changing tide, even the loyal Assyrian vassal Kushtashpi of Kuma was forced to swear fealty to Urartu. Meanwhile, the be-plagued and be-eclipsed Assyrian rulers kept copy-pasting the phrase in the land, like Jack Torrance at the Overlook Hotel. Oh, my friends, things do not look good for the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Whatever is to happen next, how could they even possibly survive? You know that I only get this annoying approaching the end of a season. So, yes, we're going to leave things right here in 750 BC until sometime later this year. We are rapidly approaching the end of the road, and though the Neo Hittite and Aramean kingdoms look strong, they are not at all long for this world. And though the Assyrian Empire looks down for the count, she's still got some life in her yet. So make sure to come back later this year for the final season of The Ancient World Carchemish.
The Ancient World Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Along with My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, The Explorers Podcast, and other great shows.